1 Kings chapter 18. A very familiar passage to many of you. And although as we've been going through the book of 1 Kings, I haven't been reading every section, because some of them are quite long, I am going to read through this section of 1 Kings. It's an important and very vivid passage that I think many of us remember even from our youth. Let us hear now the word of the Lord, 1 Kings chapter 18. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys, Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go, tell your Lord, Behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord is not sent to seek you. And when they would say, He is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go, tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties? in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, Go tell your Lord, Behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table." 
So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left the prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut in pieces, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us! But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped round the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's musing, or is relieving himself, or he's on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud, and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances till the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering, and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran round the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. 
and they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them. This is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Word. We thank you for your servant Elijah. But we thank you more, Lord, for your merciful intervention into our lives. We ask that you would bless us by this Word, that it would take deep root in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we all have our favorite scenes, don't we? Perhaps this has happened at your house like it's happened at mine. There'll be a lull after the kids have gone to bed, and we'll be sitting on the couch, just kind of flipping through the channels, just kind of relaxing for 15 or 20 minutes, and inevitably, I'll come across some movie and stop and watch it. My wife will look at me and say, do we really need to watch this? This is like the 10th time. And I'll say, well, you know, there's this, this is the good part here. This is this scene that I'm going to watch. Yes, it happens to ladies too, because I can't tell you how many times I've walked in and said, oh yeah, they're going to get married too. Well, first they're going to fight, and then they're going to come back, and then they're going to get married. Yeah. Do we really need to watch that again? We do it even around holiday time, don't we? We think about the 4th of July, and we think about the American Revolution, but we don't think about it in total, do we? We think about Washington crossing the Delaware. We think about Paul Revere. We have our favorite scenes that we replay in our mind because they mean so much to us, and they seem to be very decisive. That's the kind of text we're faced with this morning. It's a passage that just a few weeks ago I mentioned, and my three boys talked over each other trying to describe the scene to me because they know it already from Sunday school. It's the scene of the battle between, as we might think at first glance, the prophets of Baal and Elijah. But it's really the battle between God and no God. It's the battle that goes on, not just on Mount Carmel, it's the battle that goes on in the center of Katy and in Austin and in Washington, D.C., and in China. It goes on everywhere that men seek to serve a God that is no God, a fake God. The Lord God himself does battle with those fake gods by the power of his word. And so we see here that scene played out before our eyes in all stark detail. And so what we'll see, are, first we'll take a brief look at the players that are involved the players that are involved. And then we'll look at the scene. The scene. And then after we've seen the players and the scene, we're going to look at the main event. The main event is not what you think it is. It's actually the text that follows what I've just read. So the players, the scene, and the main event. Who are these players? Well, there's only two types. You may have heard me say it's one of my sayings that I repeat over and over again, that in the world there is no Switzerland. You are either for God or you are against it. You either trust in the Lord or you trust in something else. And so that is the case here. We have those who trust in themselves, and then we have those who trust in God. And there's a, a bit of variety within those 
two categories. Not everyone is the same. Just like if you look around here right now, not everyone here is the same. We have different gifts. We have different uh, emotions. We have different desires. And so is the case here in these two categories. Among those who trust for themselves, the first one that we'll look at is the one who's kind of behind the scenes. Jezebel. Who is she? Well, you remember, she's a princess. She's a pagan princess from the land of Tyre, from Balesville. She is the biggest Baal supporter on the block. She certainly has more than one large sign, Go Baal, Go, on the front yard of her palace. You can almost picture in the background of 1 Kings 16, 17, 18, 19, her following Ahab around and nagging him at dinner, before bed, at breakfast, out at the yard. If they had cell phones, she would call him up on the phone and say, you're not doing enough to push the bail movement, honey. She is a bail supporter. She's not content merely with tolerance, now is she? She has bail tolerance. She's had it for some time. No. Just like those who in our nation say they are for tolerance, they're for tolerance for everything but the faith of the Bible. Tolerance is not enough. It's merely a beginning. It's merely a crack in the door to get the worship of Baal. No, she doesn't even want Baal to have the first among equals position. She wants everything else wiped out. And she's not afraid to take some severe action. She's not about passing some laws saying that the worship of God can't be done in public or you can't print scrolls of Deuteronomy. No. She goes out and kills those who say they serve the Lord God. It's such a scary time that those who are the prophets of the Lord need to be hidden in the midst of a famine in caves. She is front and center, the one who wishes to see the worship of the Lord eradicated from all of Israel. But she's not the only one. There are others as well. There are these false prophets that she's brought with her. There are plenty of them. They're on the meal ticket. They're on the gravy train. They're on government assistance. They sit around the table, 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, and they spend their time complimenting Jezebel, complimenting themselves, thinking about certain ways to increase Baal worship. They're probably very happy with themselves. The poll numbers show that Baal is rising in the polls. After all, there's 850 of them, and there's a huge Baal temple, and who else is there? Well, there might be some servants of the Lord in hiding, and there's this guy, Elijah, that's really hard to find. But you know, his poll numbers are worse than both the presidents and congresses. They're in charge. Now, the interesting thing is, you would think that three years without rain would be awfully bad press for prophets and priests of a God whose job it is to bring rain. But no, you would think the fertility God, who can't bring forth any fruit, 
would be in a tough spot. And the interesting thing is, is that they're not able to help one bit. It's been three years. Could you imagine the conversations that must go on between some of the more cynical in the palace? Didn't rain last month. No. Last six months either. Really glad we got the fertility profits over here. Big help they are. Rain God. Uh-huh. No movement at all. They can't do anything. They remind us of some other priests. You remember those who served Pharaoh. They had this wonderful knack of not being able to do anything that was useful. Moses shows how water turns into blood, and what do they do? Well, they they find some other clean water, and they say, we can ruin that water too. Can't heal the water. They can't do anything but produce more misery. And very quickly, they're overwhelmed and unable to do a thing. So is the case here with these false prophets. So you have a queen who's leading the charge for Baal. You've got a bunch of prophets standing around that really aren't very good at anything. But who else is there? Well, there's a sorry excuse for a king named Ahab. I say he's a sorry excuse for a king because in 1 Kings 18, we see how unable as a king he is. He's unable to do a lot of things. He's unable to stop the famine, isn't he? Three years. Imagine stock prices plummeting. The farmers complaining. People coming and begging for food. He can't do a thing. He's got 850 prophets on the payroll, and they don't help at all. His wife is nagging him to death, and she doesn't help at all. And he just stands around. He's completely unable. And you may say to yourself, well, he's not in charge of the weather. Well, he's not even able to do something as simple as find Elijah. He looks everywhere. He goes to every kingdom. And this is not like trying to find people in the middle of nowhere. There are some out-of-the-way places in Israel, but Ahab is unable to project power in various places. He's unable because God has made him unable. But Ahab is not just unable, he also has the wrong priorities. Look here at verse 5. Ahab says to Obadiah, Go through the land. I hope we can find some grass to save the horses and mules alive. Now think about that. The previous verse tells us that Jezebel has just gone out and murdered the Lord's prophets. Does that bother Ahab? No. Not when there might be a horse that might get sick. Or a mule. His priorities are completely upside down. He doesn't care about his kingdom. He's got people starving. There's no water, very little food, and he's worried about the animals. Why? Because the animals project his power. They're a part of his war machine. And in the midst of his world falling apart, he's busy lending soldiers to fight against Assyria. He's worried about how he looks, how much power he has. He has all the wrong priorities. Our author makes it very clear here. You you miss a little bit of it in the English translation. In verse 4, it said that Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord. And then in verse 5, it says, 
Find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. The actual wording there is, so that some of the animals may not be cut off. Same word. He cares more about animals than people. But he also has the wrong priorities because he blames the wrong person. In his mind, who's to blame here? But Elijah. But who's really to blame? Ahab and his family and his disobedience. But the final thing we see is is that he's not even really in charge because when Elijah tells him to bring the prophets, how many prophets show up? It's only 450. The prophets of Asherah don't come. You can almost imagine that conversation in the living room of the palace. Honey, I need you to, to summon the 850 prophets. I will not. But honey, I'm the king. And I promised Elijah I'd bring the prophets. I will not. Most certainly not. Those are my prophets, not yours. Who do you think you are? Well, I'm the king. Well, that doesn't matter. You see who wears, not only as one commentator puts it, the pantyhose, but also the pants in this house. Ahab's not in charge of anything. He trusts in himself, but he's not in charge of anything. Contrast that with those who trust in God. A man by the name of Obadiah. He's a man who has all the right priorities. He's about saving the prophets at great cost. Now remember, he is feeding and watering, so to speak, a hundred prophets during the middle of a famine. And it's not like he can go down to the market and have regular shipments sent over because he's hiding them. He's got to sacrifice. He's got to use what resources are available to him. This is difficult, quiet work. He served the Lord since he was very young, we know in verse 12. He is a man who has the right priorities. And he's also a man who is a part of God's purpose. He is an instrument of God, just like Elijah. That's something important for us to dwell on for just a minute. You see, we think sometimes, unless we can serve like Elijah, we're not really effective servants. Obadiah cures us of that. He's a quiet man. He's in government. He's not in your face like Elijah. But he's doing a significant act of service, and it takes courage. Don't be put off by the fact that he mentions that he doesn't want to be killed. How many of you are ready right now to stand up and say, oh, please let someone come in and martyr me? I've been waiting for that all week. No. You don't want to die. Neither does, neither does Obadiah. If he must, he must, but it's not something he's looking forward to. But he's quietly serving the Lord in the place where the Lord has put him. There are many ways to serve. Have you thought about where you serve the Lord? Where God has placed you, opportunities he has given to you. That's what Obadiah did, and he served. And then, of course, there's Elijah, one we are very familiar with. He's faithful in a different way, in a much more public way. And he is obedient to the Lord. The Lord says, go and go to Ahab. Now, I'm going to send rain. And as he has done in the past, Elijah obeys the word of the Lord. 
And he goes down, trusting completely that God will protect him. Those are the players on the stage, so to speak. And then the scene is set as Elijah comes and calls Ahab to the great battle. The first thing we need to ask ourselves, though, is whose battle is it? Is it our battle or is it God's? Is it Elijah's battle or is it the Lord's? You see, Baalism had great appeal for Israel in these days. It had an old pedigree. Baalism was actually old-time religion. It was a religion that existed in this land before the worship of the Lord. Because while the Israelites were in Egypt... The great religion of Baal was all over Canaan. It was a very practical religion. You remember we said, if you're a farming community, what more do you need than a fertility god? So it's traditional. It's practical. But it's something else, too. It's also quite exciting. Because, you see, if you were the typical farmer and your life was kind of boring... You were home, and you weren't real fond of your wife, and your kids annoyed you, and your job was humdrum. You could spice up your life by going down to the local Baal temple. There'd be all kinds of prostitutes to choose from. Baal's a fertility god. You see, it's exciting. It's like combining the Vegas Strip with going to church. Who wouldn't like that? It's a great appeal to the secular, sensual man. So Baalism has this great appeal. God knows this, and he's going to attack Baal right upon his appeal. And so he picks picks a deliberate place to have this contest. Have you ever wondered why this contest happens on Mount Carmel? It's, It's not because it's the future site of making sweet taffy candy. It's because Mount Carmel is right on the border of Tyre. It's a holy place to Baal. It's Baal's home turf. God is going to say to Baal, I'm going to fight you and defeat you on your terms in your home court. How difficult is it just even in our everyday life when we watch sports to see someone go into someone else's home court and defeat them. We talk about the home court advantage, don't we? Perhaps some of you have seen a show on the Food Network. It's a show called Throwdown with Bobby Flay. He's a chef and what he does is he finds someone who's an expert chef in some area. It could be making wedding cakes. It could be barbecue. It could be uh, jerk chicken or steak. And he goes to their neighborhood and makes their dish in their place. And more often than not, even though he's an incredible chef, he loses because he's on their territory, on their terms, in their turf. That's what God says to Baal. I'm going to fight you on your turf with your hometown crowd, and we're going to fight on your area, rain, fertility, fire. Because you see, 
Baal was the god of the storm and fertility. And storms bring not only rain, what else do they bring? Lightning, thunder, fire from heaven. This is deliberate. And it's a deliberate confrontation. The confrontation is about who is God. There's no more sitting on the fence, Elijah says. That's what he means when he says, how long will you limp between two opinions? It's as if we say, you can't sit on the fence any longer, folks. You've got to decide. But you see, Elijah even gets a little dig in here. They're not truly sitting on the fence in a dispassionate manner. They're not saying to themselves, oh, I wonder what I'll do. Who? God or Baal? No, we're talking about people that have been worshiping Baal for the past three years. That word, how long will you limp between two opinions, is only used one other time in the Bible. It's used to describe how the prophets of Baal move around the altar. Elijah's saying, I know you've been serving Baal. I know you've been trying to think you can offer up sacrifices to him and still keep a little part that goes to the Lord. But that's not possible. And he challenges them. He says, you know what? You have to decide who is God, and when you've decided who God is, you have to follow him. This is not an intellectual exercise. Once you have chosen, you must act. Isn't that what the Lord Jesus Christ says to us every day? It's not just enough to think in our minds, well, I wonder, is Jesus God or is someone else? No, we are called to act upon that choice, to serve, to follow. There's echoes of the New Testament in this phrase from Elijah. You remember how our Lord called each of his disciples. He said, follow me. This is a deliberate confrontation in a deliberate place. It is God's battle, not just ours. And the people find out very quickly that you can't trust a no-God. All of the advantages are on Baal's side. You notice that in the story? Elijah says, you pick the altar. You get first dibs on the calf. You go ahead, you go first. By the way, take your time. No time limit here. We'll take the morning. Well, I guess we'll take the afternoon too. You want to go even longer? We'll go almost to the evening. All of the advantages are on Baal's side. They have 450. The Lord has one. They have their home court. They have... This is Baal's thing, so to speak. Lightning and storms and fire from heaven is Baal's thing. All of the advantages are there except one. And that is that Baal isn't real. You see, false gods require help. Notice what they do. They walk around and they scream and they yell. And they say, oh, Baal, answer us. And they yell and they cut themselves and they go in circles and they chant and they do everything that they can to try and rouse up Baal. They need to raise Baal from the dead, so to speak, because it's a drought. It's like Baal has gone down during the winter. You remember that story, the time when Baal falls under the power of the death god? 
and he has to be rescued by his wife. Now they're trying to rescue Baal from the dead. What a contrast that is, isn't it? Is that what Christianity is like? Do we need to rouse Jesus from the dead? Do we need to take our power and bring him up to life? No. It's actually the exact opposite, isn't it? It's Jesus who brings us from the dead. It's Jesus who gives us life. Because Jesus is real. He's not fake like Baal. And so they go around and perform all kinds of ceremonies, all kinds of activities. And they are reduced to some kind of weary shuffle around the altar, limping around, cutting themselves. And there's irony here, too. The people of God have exchanged the joyful dance of serving the Lord in faith, as found in Psalm 149 and Psalm 150, for the weary shuffle of idolatry. This is what false gods need. And what's the result? It's very sharp. Look at verse 29. The result is that no voice... No answer. No one paid attention. It's very sharp in the Hebrew. There's actually, the text here says, there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. And that's deliberate because the focus is upon the no one. There's no voice because there's nobody to talk. There's no answer because there's no one out there. There's no one paying attention because there's no one that exists to pay attention. It's not just that it's quiet. It's not just that the echo doesn't work. It's that there's no one there. No one ever will answer. There never will be any voice because Baal is not real. You see, their focus and their attention is upon something that doesn't even exist. And so they're let down. This is what happens whenever man trusts in something that isn't real. Whether it's something vague like evolution, or something very specific like Buddha or Allah. Don't expect an answer because there's no one there to answer. The only answer can come from the God who speaks, and that is the Lord. He has spoken. He's spoken in his word. He's spoken through his prophets. He's spoken through his spirit. That's the only place to find an answer. If you're looking for an answer anywhere else, you will not find it. There's no one there. There's no one there to pay attention. There's no voice. This is what happens when you try to trust to a no-God. And then what happens is, the people of God see the power of the real God. There's a stark contrast here. God shows that numbers don't matter. Handicaps don't matter. Elijah comes forward. And in sharp contrast to all of these other rantings and ravings all day long by the prophets of Baal, he says simply, come near to me, to the people. And he rebuilds this altar. He uses a disrepaired altar. 
That handicap won't bother him. He takes 12 stones to remind them that there are 12 tribes, not how many? Ten. Even in this, he reminds Israel of God's purpose. He says, 12 stones, 12 tribes. And then he does something that seems foolhardy. He says, well, you couldn't make the fire go. Let's try this. Get four buckets of water. Dump them on the wood. Can you imagine? Water? Uh, Elijah? Go ahead and dump them. All right. They dump four buckets. Do it again. Fill up four more buckets. They dump them. I don't know what he's thinking. It's hard enough. Third time. Four more buckets. Four plus four plus four. How many is that? Twelve. Just like the stones. God's not intimidated by that. God is going to show on Baal's home turf, on Baal's thing, outnumbered, outgunned, water ruining the sacrifice. He's going to show who God is. And Elijah doesn't do a big rigmarole. He says a simple prayer. Oh, Lord, show them who is God. And we might expect a little flicker of flame on a corner of the altar. And everybody says, yeah, look at that. It's like a matchwork. God is so good. No. What happens? The fire comes down. It consumes what? The sacrifice. And then it does something that is unbelievable. I'm not even sure how to describe it because I've never seen it. Have you ever seen stones burn? I don't think so because they're not flammable. Have you ever seen dust burn? Have you ever seen water burn? Now, I've heard about a lake catching on fire up near Cleveland, but that's because there's things on the lake that burn. This fire comes down from heaven and does something that we don't even expect fire to do. It consumes everything. It shows the power of God that he is not bound by anything, even nature. And he does this all on a simple prayer from Elijah. Notice that Elijah doesn't have to entice God to do something. He doesn't have to jump around the altar. He doesn't have to promise things. He doesn't have to pray long prayers. He just simply trusts the Lord. You see, that's a challenge for us, isn't it? At times, we could try and get the Lord's attention through our activity. We expect God to bless us because we hold VBSs, and we have Bible studies, and we go to food banks, and we double our prayer time, and we promise to read our Bibles. And you see, there's nothing wrong with any of that. But you see, if we rely upon that to get God's attention, if we rely upon that to get God's blessing, then we're no different than these prophets of Baal. We're simply called to trust God. And God responds. And so then we come very briefly to the main event. The main event is very brief. It's almost anticlimactic, but you need to remember that's what we're actually here for. What's this all about? It's all about God doing what? Sending rain. That's the main event. And so Elijah goes off 
and he prays. That's kind of anticlimactic too, isn't it? He's just seen God move in a miraculous, powerful way, a way in which God really hasn't moved previously. It's spectacular. And rather than stand around and gloat or take the congratulations of the crowd, he goes off in humble prayer. And he prays to the Lord. And his confidence is based in the promise of the Lord. Do you remember when we studied Solomon's prayer at the temple? Verse 35 of chapter 8. And when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and grant rain upon the land. You see, Elijah knows that prayer. He is confident because of what God has promised. He knows that God will fulfill his word. But even that isn't easy, is it? He says to his servant, go out and look. Goes out, nothing. Go out again, nothing. Go out again, nothing. And if we're honest with ourselves, some of us, many of us, maybe all of us, would give up by about time four or five. There's no rain coming. Go again. Seven times with a small beginning, a puff of cloud. God shows that he has fulfilled his word, that he has provided for his people, and that he provides where Baal could not. He gives provision. He hears Elijah's prayer and he gives provision. And that leads us to this final curious section of 1 Kings 18. Where Elijah tells Ahab, get in your chariot and go to Jezreel. Because you don't want to get your chariot stuck when it starts to pour like crazy over here. And Elijah picks himself up and he runs. And he runs before Ahab. And in the power of the Lord, he gets there first. And we say to ourselves, what's going on here? And what God is doing is he's providing an opportunity, a gospel opportunity for even a wicked cad like Ahab. He's saying to Ahab, this is how the kingdom is supposed to be with the word of the Lord going ahead of the king. This is your opportunity again, Ahab, to repent and to believe and to serve me. And we know the end of it, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't give that opportunity to Ahab. He's heaping coals on Ahab's head. He's showing what a miserable wretch Ahab is, how he spurns God's grace. He gives Ahab the opportunity to see and to hear, and he rejects it. But he gives him that opportunity. He's brought Elijah into his life. He's brought the word of God into his life. No matter who you are, you are not beyond God's grace. God can forgive murderers, adulterers, liars, thieves, idolaters. The Lord calls you today to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. To put your trust and faith in Him, not in prophets, not in false gods, not in yourself. That's what God wants. And He's shown you His power. 
power of his word, the power of his prophet. Because you see, Elijah says, now they know you are God, and I am your servant, and your word is true. Do you know that today? Do you know he is God? Do you know I am his servant? Do you know this word is true? It's just as true today as it was then. This is the true word that leads to life, that points us to the true God who is alive, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made yourself known, not just through your word, O Lord, not just through your prophet, but also, Lord, through the Lord Jesus Christ, that he came and dwelt among us. We ask this day, O Lord, that you would impress upon us not only your goodness, but your mercy and your grace. We ask, O Lord, that you would bless us, that you would bless us with faith, that you would bless us with assurance, that you would bless us with perseverance. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may the Lord of all peace give you peace at all times and in every way. May the Lord be with you all. Amen.